we've been in a series looking through the book of Philippians, and I am very excited about our text um, today. We're going to be in Philippians 1, starting in verse 19. So I'm going to read that for us, and then we will pray. Verse 19 in Philippians 1. Paul says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ that this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in, in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So, I remember the start of my sophomore year in college when my, I went to Marion Baylor right down the road. My roommate showed up from Christmas break with the brand new iPhone. You remember those days when the iPhone was just sort of legend and you begin to hear whispers about what this new phone could do, what the future looked like? Like at that point, we had just kind of heard stories about what the iPhone could do. I still had a Razor phone, if you remember what those were. And I know some of you are like, we didn't even have cell phones in our days. Like, look, okay, there was a day when I lived in the dark ages too, okay? Or maybe you would call them the glory days. I don't, I don't know. But he showed up with this brand new iPhone, and all of us were like, well, what does it do? Like, what does this magical thing do? What's the iPhone all about? What's this amazing thing that we have been hearing about, and it would have been really strange, right, if my roommate would have grabbed that iPhone and then put some butter on it and then tried to spread that butter on the toast and use it as a butter knife, right? That would have been weird. It would have been weird if he would have taken that iPhone and tried to use it as a doorstop. That would have been strange because that's not what the iPhone was created to do. That's not what we have been hearing that it has done. It would have robbed the iPhone of its original purpose, and it would have robbed us, well, maybe it would have saved us now that we know what we know about iPhones, but at that time, it would have robbed the person of being able to use their maps, of being able to text, and be able to, to call, and to be able to surf the web. Like, it would have robbed that person of joy, which now we know is addiction. Um, <laughs> but 
Let me ask you, if I were to ask you, what is the intended purpose of your life? What's the intended purpose of your life? If you were really to think about that, what is the intended purpose of my life? Why am I here on this earth? What, what would you say? Like, what would be your answer to that? I think in this room, we would have several different answers that some of you would say, well, my purpose of my life is to glorify God. That's why I exist. Some of you might say, well, the purpose of my life is to love my kids, to love my spouse, to serve my family. Some of you might say, the purpose of my life is to be a good person, that, that I would live life well and love others well. And then I would imagine that there would be some of you who would say, Colton, I have no idea. I live, I breathe, I eat, I go to the bathroom, and then I die, right? Some of you would have no idea. And if you aren't sure what the purpose of your life, or if you want to check on to see if you're actually living out the purpose of your life, think you could ask it this way, okay? Do the ambitions of your life match the purpose of your life? Do the ambitions of your life match the purpose of your life? In other words, do the things that you do, the things that you strive for, the things that you work for, do these things match the ultimate goal and purpose of your life? So if your purpose was... was if you said your purpose was to glorify God, then do your ambitions match that purpose? If your purpose is to love your family, do your ambitions match that purpose? And my question is, if we were to really take a microscope and look at your ambitions, what kind of story would they tell? What kind of story would they tell us about your life? That when it's all said and done and life is over, what would your ambitions have said about you. And the bigger question is that we see in this text is, will they have fit, will your ambitions have fit God's intended purpose for you? Do those things match? Or are we in danger of living a life that is full of wasted ambitions on a wasted purpose? Does that make sense? Are we in danger of living a life that is full of wasted ambitions on a wasted purpose? purpose? Paul is going to help us answer that question. And so he starts in verse 19 and he says, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, that this will turn out for my deliverance. He says, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Okay, before we jump in this, into this passage, we have to fully understand the circumstances here. Paul is writing to the church in Philippi. He is under house arrest, and he has been preaching the gospel to the imperial guard, and the gospel is exploding. So his encouragement to the church in Philippi is that they would not be discouraged because God has taken difficult circumstances, and he's used them to advance the gospel. But he also says, and Rich preached about this last week, that there are some that are using those circumstances to shame him to try to afflict him. That's what he says in verse 17. And the assumption in the previous verses is that others are saying that there is something wrong with Paul, and that's why he is in prison. And verse 19 and 20 tell us two things. One, that Paul expects to be delivered from his circumstances. He expects to be delivered. He says, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. And two, he believes that whatever that deliverance is, it will not be in shame. He says, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed. 
And so to say it plainly, Paul is saying, whatever the end result of these circumstances are, at the end of it, I will not be ashamed. And that's actually a pretty interesting statement because it's a pretty confident statement, right? He's saying he's in prison and he's like, at the end of this, I'm not going to be ashamed. I mean, there are literally people out on the streets talking bad about him, trashing his name. And he says, I'm not going to be ashamed. He says, I expect that God will deliver me from this. And when I am delivered, I will not be ashamed of what I have done. And I wonder, and I wonder this for myself all the time, like, can I truly say that at the end of my life? Like, that I will hold no shame. I will, in full confidence, have courage. How can Paul have such confidence here? Well, I think it's because that confidence, this confidence that he has, is rooted in his assurance of his ultimate purpose in life. His ultimate purpose in life. You know, it would be tempting to say here that Paul is constrained by his imprisonment, that he's constrained by his imprisonment, that his joy can be squashed because his freedom has been taken away. But here in this moment, Paul does not feel shame. He's confident. Why? Because he knows that freedom is not the absence of limitation. Freedom is not the absence of limitation. It's not the absence of having something. It's the ability to live out your created intent. Freedom is the ability to live out your created intent. A a fish is most free when it swims. Why? Because it's a fish. That's what it was created to do, that even while Paul is in prison, he is free to live out his purpose. And he says, I'm not going to be ashamed. What was I made to do? Let me do that. That's what's happening here. And so he says, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Do you see it? He says, I'm not going to be ashamed, but that with full courage, Christ, here's why he doesn't have shame, because Christ will be honored in my body body. The NIV uses the word exalted. Uh, other translations might say magnify, but the, but the message here is that instead of shame, Paul says, I will have full courage. courage. Why? Because all that matters is whether or not Christ is honored, whether or not Christ is exalted, whether or not Christ is magnified. So Paul, who's in prison, knowing that the prayers of those in Philippi and through the help of the spirit of Jesus, he knows that he will be delivered. And there are two possibilities that come from that. One is that he will have shame at the end of it all. And the other is that he will have courage. And that is dependent on whether or not Paul can stay true to his ultimate purpose. And what's his ultimate purpose? That Christ would be honored in his body. So whatever the deliverance is, whether it's by life or by death, if Christ is honored, if Christ is exalted, then Paul says, I will have full courage. So let's ask a question. According to this text, what would you say Paul's freedom is dependent on? Is it dependent on whether or not he gets out of prison? No. Is it dependent on whether or not those who are shaming him through their selfish ambition preaching would stop? No. His freedom is dependent on whether or not he is living out his created intent. Does that make sense? His freedom is dependent on whether or not he is living out his created intent that Christ would be exalted in his life. That's his only purpose. That's his only 
purpose and he has courage because he knows that all that matters in his life is Christ that is glorified. And so let me be super honest here, and it might make a couple of you uncomfortable. Some of us in this room are absolutely miserable. You're miserable because you have made something other than God your ultimate purpose. You've made something other than Christ your ultimate purpose in life. That there are some of us, and I'm included in this sometimes, that have tried to find satisfaction and peace through things that were never intended to give you satisfaction and peace. The human heart was not designed to be filled by created things. That's not how you were designed. And some of you, you sit here in this very moment and you know that and you have a pit in your stomach because you know that deep down in your bones, you know that you have misplaced ambitions towards a wasted purpose in life. You have believed the lie of the world and the lie of the enemy that your life is about you. That, that if you can find the right amount of money, that if you can find the right amount of stuff, that if your wife or husband will treat you a certain way, that if your kids will behave a certain way, that if you have the right job, then you will have satisfaction and peace in life. And it's a lie. Because the human heart was never intended to be satisfied by fleeting things. That was not God's intention when he created you. There is only one person who can satisfy that deep pit in your bones, and it's Christ. That's why in verse 21, Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Like, think about that statement. This is like one of those coffee cup verses, right, that you see all the time, and we kind of lose, it loses its zeal. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Okay, let's take that statement and see how it measures up against the other things in the world. For me to live is money. For me to live is money. Like, doesn't that sound foolish when you say it out loud like that? For me to live is money. Really, the point of your life is to accumulate a bunch of wealth. For what purpose? In an attempt to find happiness that will never come because money can't satisfy, that you weren't created to be satisfied by wealth? Okay, for me to live is success and respect. So the whole point of your life it's just so that others will see you as successful. Doesn't that sound exhausting? You're always worried about how others will see you or how others will think of you. Well, if I do this, they'll think of me this way. And if I don't do this, and they won't think of me. And, if I, and it's, this just sounds exhausting, right? Okay. For me to live is to be a good person. Well, the problem with that is one, the Bible says that there is no one that's good. There is no one who searches for God, no one who seeks God, no one who knows God. That's why the Bible says that Jesus came to stand in our place, that we can't be good on our own, only God is good. So if we live a life that only aims at being a good person, then what happens when our definition of good is different than someone else's definition of good? Are you just going to change who you are? Because what they say is good is different than what you say is good? So that doesn't work. Okay, here's one that's a little bit more tricky, okay? For me to live is making sure that my child is happy, right? Because that's not a bad thing. Oh, Colton, are you about to tell me? Hold on. Every parent should be striving for that, right? Here's the problem with even that. For me to live is to make my child happy. How do you define happiness, right? How will you teach them to be happy? Will you teach them that happiness is found in wealth? 
Will you teach them that happiness is found in being a good person? Will you teach them that happiness is, is found in success, in comfort? Because the Bible says that happiness can only be found where? In Christ. So it still circles back for me to live is Christ. And here's why. Because he's better. He's better. When you stack up all your ambitions in life, whatever that is, and you place them next to the glory of Jesus, if you truly see it, he will always be better. Always. And when we understand that, when God opens our heart to understand the grand story that God has told in his word, that we have been created, that we find our freedom in enjoying God and worshiping God. But our sin has separated us, and God has sent his son Jesus to take our sin upon himself. And in him, we have forgiveness. And in that place, we have true freedom. Because of Jesus, because of the gospel, I can now say, I have the full ability to live out my created intent to honor, to exalt, to magnify Christ. Because of Christ, we are now free to live out our true purpose. And when we understand that purpose, our ambitions will follow. And it's not going to matter what kind of circumstances you find yourself in. It's not going to matter because in each and every circumstances, we will look them right in the face and say, no, he's better. Jesus is always better. So when God blesses you with a lot of money, you're able to hold it loosely and say, God, use this for your glory to live is Christ. Jesus, you are better. It's true in the big moments of life. It's true in the mundane moments of life. And it's true in the hardest moments of life. Whether it's your wedding day, one of the most joyous days of your life, whether it's one of the worst days of your life when life starts to crumble, or if you're at the house and your kids are driving you crazy and you've got bills to pay, and it's the mundane repeat of life, and it feels like life is just sucking the air out of you, that you are able to say, it doesn't matter. To live is Christ. He's better. I know for me, um, if I could just share part of my story, when, when my dad took his own life, this truth, this verse sustained me. When my mom passed away, this, this truth sustained me. Even, even less than a year ago, and most of you know our story, this reality sustained me that it doesn't, hap- doesn't matter what happens in my life. My life belongs to Christ. And as we saw in verse 6, he will hold me fast. He will begin the work that he, begun, he began in you. That it doesn't matter what my circumstances look like. It doesn't matter what others are saying about me. My hope is not built on them. My hope is built on Christ. Is he exalted in my life? That's the only question you need to ask. Is he exalted in my life? Because if he is, then I have no shame. But I have full courage in Christ. I don't have to prove anything to anybody. I exalt him because to live is Christ. And in verse 22, Paul explains what he means by that. He says, if I'm to live in the flesh, okay? So he says, to live as Christ. This is connecting to live as Christ. If I'm to live in the flesh... That means fruitful labor for me. And he says, yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. So Paul says, if I am to remain, that is fruitful labor for me. So question, what does he mean by fruitful labor? And I think it's pretty interesting. 
Um, If you go back to verses 10 and 11, those verses are actually pretty helpful here. It's his prayer at the beginning of the book. So I'm connecting these because I think they're connected. So what does Paul mean when he says to remain is fruitful labor for him? Well, in verse 9, he prays and he says, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so pure and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And he says, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So through Christ, through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, Philippians, you can have the fruit of righteousness. That means that when God looks at you, if you're in Christ, he doesn't look at you in anger, in his wrath. He doesn't look at you in disappointment. And because of that, on the day of Christ, you will be, verse 10, pure and blameless. And I think Paul is saying in verse 22, fruitful labor for me is showing you that truth, showing you the majesty and glory of that reality. I will honor Christ in my body through my life by working to show you the fruit of Christ's righteousness. Does that make sense? That was a lot of words. So let's bring that to us. What is fruitful labor for you when you interact with your family, when you raise your children, when you interact with your spouse, when you interact with your roommate, when you interact with those that you work with? Fruitful labor is honoring, exalting, magnifying Christ by laboring to show others the fruit of the righteousness that comes in Christ. That you would look to your children, to your spouse, to your roommate, and you would go, look, not at me but at Christ. Look at what he's done. Look at who he is. Look at what his word says about him. Isn't he the only thing we need? That your ambition is to see the gospel of Christ known. To live is Christ and fruitful labor is going. Isn't he good? And he says, this is for your joy and progress in the faith. And I'm going to come alongside you. I'm going to disciple you. And I'm going to show you the righteousness of Christ. I'm going to teach. He says in verse 24, he says, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ because of my coming to you. Again, so Paul Paul says to stay alive is more necessary for you. Why? And that seems kind of arrogant, doesn't it? Like, you need me. (laughs) You need me to stay alive. You can't survive without me, but but hold on. He says, I know that I will remain and continue for you all, for your progress in the faith. So I don't think that he's saying this out of arrogant, but he's saying this out of a confidence that says, I know what my life is about. I know what my purpose is. My purpose is to honor and magnify Christ. And in doing that, I'm going to come alongside you and show you what that looks like. I'm going to invest into you. I'm going to show you the words of Christ. We should all want this. We should all want to live a life of confidence that says, in my life, I know that God will use my exalting of him to show others how great he is. And he says, when I do that, you will have ample cause to glorify who? Me? But to glorify, no, he says to glorify God. In my 
coming alongside of you, walking with you for your progress and for your joy in the faith, you will have ample, ample cause to glorify Christ. So, do you believe that the purpose of your life is that Christ would be honored, Christ would be exalted, Christ would be magnified, worshipped in your life? Now, if you do, then what is fruitful labor for you? Because God has placed you in a city in this moment of time, in the family you're in, with the kids that you have, with the school that you go to, what is fruitful labor for you? It would be to show others, show those around you that you are not the center of the story, that God, through the work of Christ, is the story. To live is Christ. So that's only half the statement, okay? Because he says, for me to live is Christ. And then he says, and to die is gain. To die is gain. It's really hard to understand the weight of that statement for some of us, okay? Because some of us aren't faced with that reality. Like most of us think we have years left in our lives, but for Paul, death is a real possibility for him in this moment. And he goes on with this thought in verse 23. He says, I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. So here's a question. Do you know why Paul isn't afraid of death? Do you know why when he's at death's doorstep, there is no for its fear. It's because he knows that his purpose in life has not been wasted, and he knows that in his ambitions, his ambitions in life have been lasting. There's no fear at the end of his life. What if I just would have done this differently, or if I wouldn't have done this, or if I would have done this? There's nothing. He looks at death, and he says, gain. It's nothing but gain, that there will be a day when you and I will lose everything. Like, think about all your friends your mom, your dad, your kid, I mean, your dreams, all your dreams in your life of what life could be like, they will be gone. Your dreams of accomplishing something. One day you will lose everything. And on that day, the person whose purpose is set on Christ, the person who magnifies Christ, the, that person will look at those circumstances on that day and that person will say, gain. This is far better because I finally get to truly be in the presence of the one that I was designed to enjoy. No more battle of the flesh and the spirit. No more sin. No more temptations from the world. I get Jesus and that's far better. All my ambitions, they're true and they're worthy. My ambition for him to be honored in my body, my ambition to be used with all the things that God has given me, my house, my family, my future, that it would all be aimed at one thing, to make much of his name. And I promise, man, I promise, if that is your ambition on that day, you will say, gain. I think this doesn't connect with us sometimes, at least for me sometimes, because when we think of heavens, I think sometimes we think that we're going to be bored there. Um, like, because, I mean, this, there's a lot of good things in life. There's some great food, right? Um, and there, there's great food. There's great entertainment. I mean, um, family is wonderful, right? And so there's all these things. There's all these things that are good. And so we think, man, what is heaven really going to be like? Am I going to be bored? We're afraid that the pleasures of heaven won't compare to the pleasures that we have here on earth. earth. But here's the deal. For the person whose ambitions are set on Christ, that person won't be bored in heaven. 
No, that person won't think about the things that they didn't get. They won't think about the things they didn't buy. They won't think about the things they didn't achieve in this life. Because when we see him face to face, it will be nothing but gain. Like the pleasures that we enjoy in this life, the amazing meal that you ate, that moment with your spouse or a kid, when you graduated with that degree, that thing you accomplished that you never thought you would accomplish, like they are shadows of the pleasures that we will enjoy that day we meet Christ face to face. They are shadows of that joy. So let's summarize these few verses real quickly. Paul, who's in prison, has his freedom taken away. He's being slandered by people outside and he's facing the possibility of death. And Paul says, I rejoice in it all. (laughs) He says, I rejoice. He says, it doesn't matter. Why? Because Paul understands that his purpose and his ambitions match God's purpose. They say, Paul, we're going to take away your freedom and put you in jail. He says, great, another way to advance the gospel. Paul, your friends are going to slander you. He says, are they preaching the gospel? All right, cool. Paul, we're going to kill you. It's a die's game. I get Christ. Okay, fine. We'll let you live. The live is Christ, right? Like, like everything in this moment, all the moving pieces, he is centered on the glory and purpose of Christ. And so he can't be shaken. He can't be moved. Nothing can happen that can shake this man's faith because his purpose is set on Christ. He's so much better. And so are you shaken easily? Like when circumstances get hard and your purpose in life is shaken, whatever that is, do you move? Or do you say, look, the world can move around me, but he's so much better and I will not move from this place. And he will hold me here until I die. And even that is far better. And then this next moment, in verse 27, I love it. It's kind of a weird uh, transition. Uh, He says, after saying all that, he's more testifying about himself. And then he turns to the Philippians in verse 27, and he says, only let your manner of life, only let your manner of life be worthy of, of the gospel of Christ. And so it's kind of a change in tone almost too. Like, think of it this way, this verse. I really thought about this verse a lot. The gospel of Jesus Christ is weighty, okay? There are a lot of implications when you say, I believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And one of those implications of believing the gospel of Jesus Christ is that when you say that, you are saying my life now belongs to the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you would allow me, I could say it another way. Let your ambitions be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And there's a footnote in the ESV Bible. I don't know if it's in NIV or King James or anything like that, but in the ESV Bible, there is a footnote that is actually incredibly helpful here, okay? That there's another possibility for what verse 27 could say based on the original Greek text. And so um, here's what that footnote says. It said that Verse 27 could read as, only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. Only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. Now, if you're like, okay, that sounds familiar. Well, it's because it is. He says it two chapters later in Philippians 3.20. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's put all these ideas together. Okay. Paul says, if I am to behave as a citizen, 
that is worthy of the gospel, then that could mean to say that I behave as someone who does not belong to this world. In, in other words, he says, I, I live as if I belong to a different world completely altogether. In other words, he says, live in holiness. Live in holiness because my eternal place belongs somewhere else. My life reflects that place. So I don't pursue selfishness, anger, greed. I kill all of those things because I am not a citizen of this world and I don't behave like it. My life reflects a life that belongs and has been bought and paid for a whole world different all together. Verse 27, let me read it. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then he says, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. And he says, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So to paraphrase, behave like citizens of the gospel, um, citizens of heaven that are worthy of the gospel. He says, have one mind together, a mind that strives side by side for the gospel. I, I think he says that because he knows, man, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna fall off. We're, we're gonna get frustrated. Circumstances are gonna overcome us sometimes. And so we need to side by side, remind one another, isn't he better? Isn't he better? He is worthy. And he says, he says your lack of fear is a clear sign of their destruction. And it's also a clear sign of your salvation. What's he saying there? I, th I think he's saying, if the purpose of your life is set on Christ in such a way that your ambitions can't be shaken by circumstances, then that brings clarity to the reality that there is something that they are missing in life. That if everything I'm doing to a person, right? If, if everything I'm doing to a person can't shake who they are in Christ, then it goes, then I think he's saying it's a clear sign that they are headed towards destruction, that they would realize something, they've got something. They cannot be moved. Everything they have is in Christ. And for you, it, real, it, it shows you the security of your salvation, that you have everything in you, you need, that you have freedom because you are living within your intended purpose. So, he ends the last two verses, and I'm not going to read him, basically saying, look, you're going to suffer. It's going to be hard, especially for these folks in Philippi. I mean, they're in a place where Caesar is Lord, and day after day, they're being persecuted for their faith. And so he says, behave, not like Roman citizens, but as citizens of heaven. And for us, I mean, this day and age, I mean, it looks different for each of us, and um, there are lots of things, moving, moving pieces politically, but... For us, look, the government can come in here and try to shut us down. Um, the city could shut us down. The school can try to kick us out. But he's better. So we will stand firm and say, no, we don't live for this world. We live for Christ. He's better all together. So let me address two groups very briefly. If you're not a believer in Jesus, I just want to encourage you, and do not waste your life. If you have lived your life thinking that life is just a series of events and then you die, 
then you have completely missed the point. Like, if you live your life that the purpose of life is just eat, work, go to the bathroom, eat, go to the bathroom, go to the bathroom, go to the bathroom, have a couple kids, put a white picket fence around the house, go to the bathroom, eat some more, and then die, is that really all you believe? Or if you believe that life is just about making money or gaining respect, like, doesn't that sound empty to you? It sounds empty because it is. It is empty. He created you to find your joy and purpose in life in him. He's so much better than you could imagine. And if you're a Christian, let me ask you, do you have lasting ambitions? Um, If your purpose in life is really to honor, to exalt, and to magnify Christ with your life, then your job is not an accident. Think about that. Your job is not an accident. Student, the school that you go to, that's not an accident. It means that you being a mom or a dad to the kids that you have is not an accident, right? Paul landed in prison and said, I am here for the glory of God. Have you ever said that about your circumstances? Whatever they are, I am here for the glory of God of God, that your job, your role as a parent, your role as a student, whatever it is, it's all for the glory of Jesus, that your wedding day was for the glory of Jesus, that when you lost that person that hurt so bad, that you're still able to stand. I stand and say, I am here for the glory of Jesus. To live is Christ and to die is gain. And I, and I hope that, man, I hope that we can believe this as a faith family and that we, even as a church, can have lasting ambitions as a church on the things of Christ, that our time in Bell County would not be wasted, just like our lives would not be wasted, that we could say, no, we want to have the ambitions of a church that says the glory of Christ. And that's all that matters. (laughs) 